coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm Tyler, and with me today here in the Glory UGA studio is my coach, Charlie. Charlie, welcome back in. Another week. Is this, this is, I guess this is our final week of the regular season. Are you going to be coming back after we're done with this week? I don't know. Or have we heard the last of you? I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. I guess we got to negotiate that here in the next week or so. But no, you'll what, char- what is there to negotiate? I mean, do you want to come back? Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I have no control over what you do and do not do. This is true. I hope you'll be back. Know that there's, not, there's not much negotiating to... Discuss. Oh, in terms of like financial. Yeah. Oh, 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 really? Are you going to air a dirty laundry like that? No. Charlie will be back, right? You'll be back. Yeah. We'll make this happen. But um, Charlie, I, I know this isn't exactly Georgia related. And trust me, guys, we will talk plenty of Georgia football day. We have a ton of questions to get to as part of our week 13 mailbag. And yes, it is week 13. Last week, I was saying it was week 13 all week until I realized, oh, no, wait, it's week 12. It is officially week 13. And if we have a game, we'll see. Right now I'm hearing that a Clark Lee of VandySports.com is reporting that they had nine new positive tests today. <laughs> so what? Like, are they getting guys back or what? Like, I, I, I have no idea. I told you guys this week I have no faith it's going to be played. I hope to God the SEC finds a way for us to have a game this week. I don't know how, how that's going to work or what it's going to look like, but I don't know. We'll see. But we, we will be here regardless. So anyway, plenty of Georgia football to talk about. But Charlie, we would be remiss if we did not start this episode by making fun of the Florida Gators. It has to be done. Why would we make fun of the Gators? I mean, because it's fun. Well, yeah, easy. but what did they do? I don't know. Did you, like, watch any football this weekend? I'm just kidding. The shoe. The shoe game. The shoe. Okay, I, I don't even know how to open up talking about this. Like, when you saw that... I, I know I, how to open up. Okay. Dan Mullen's comment in his press conference. Which Are you one? kidding? Oh, like, act like... You know, the oh, fact that it was part of the play. Oh, my God. Well, what... After I think it was it was after the game, you know, he's inter- interviewed. He's asked about. It, he's like, oh, he act like he he didn't know what happened. Like, oh, what did he do that? Oh, did, did that, is that what happened? Like, dude, oh my god, stop! And then he doubles down on it on Sunday. But he went back and looked at it and said that well, the shoe was in his hand. It was a football move. It was part. Of it was part. It was part of the play. It's like, oh my god, like, oh, what do what, what do we make of Dan Mullen? And obviously, he is the clown of all clowns, but. As a human being, I think he is one. No accountability. Well, and I think somebody, one of our listeners, um, mentioned that. I think it might have been Brent. And uh, actually, we were, I guess we're going to spoil this question. We were going to get to this later. But I think he, what did he say? Let me see if I can go back here and find it. What did Brent say? Brent said, the lack of discipline for Florida finally showed itself in a crucial moment. And that was kind of my takeaway from this. Because I was saying, I think I texted you when that happened. I was like, what would Kirby Smart do if one of our players did that? He would be on the field in about two seconds. I think what I texted you is... Ripping and I, them I will, a new one. Absolutely. I will stand by this. I think Kirby Spart would, would spontaneously combust on the field. Yes. I think he would just poof into thin air Agreed. and just die. Agreed. Well, this also goes back to that Dan Mullen can't win a big game. Because... Well, there's that layer LSU to it. LSU was deflated. He did beat us. They beat us. I give him credit there. Right. But was Stetson Bennett... Justin Bennett, lots and lots of injuries, but yeah. I mean, I guess it happened. Right, but LSU had basically freshmen playing for them. And I mean, that, few players. Th- they could barely and, field a team. 
They Negativity lost. swirling around. And they around. were a 23-point favorite. I know. I know. And what do you make of him not playing Kyle Pitts? Because Kyle Pitts warms up pregame, and they're like, yeah, you're not going to play. Was Do you think Kyle Pitts truly couldn't have played, or was that Dan Mullen? I think it was, it, was that his arrogance. Him. Well, I think yeah. arrogance that, like, we don't need him. We can rest him for Alabama next week. Yeah. We don't need him in this game. But didn't Kyle Trask still throw for, like, 400 yards he, th- or he threw for like 475, something like that. Yeah. Threw two picks, which contrast hasn't done much this year. No. Kind of came back to bite him. Heisman Trophy winner. I yeah, like how much, of, like how many more yards was Kyle Trask going to throw for? I mean, he threw for 475. Right, like, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Good point. I don't like, but Dan Mullen, I'm going to go back to Dan Mullen here. Like, what do we make of this person? I, I can't quite grasp what goes through this guy. I, I think the only way we can truly say this, and I know maybe it's cliche to say this, but I think Dan Mullen truly lives on his own planet. I don't think he thinks of consequences, like what the potential outcome could be. Like he doesn't think of all angles. But does he really think that we're all that stupid? Yes, probably. I mean, this is, this is and this, I'm not saying this is on, this is not a political comment about any particular political party. This, this happens on all sides of the political spectrum these days. But it's like politicians just say whatever they want to say to fit their agenda and they expect you to believe it, Right. And regardless of how dumb what they're saying, like they, they don't have the ability to like hear what's coming out of their mouths, and they think that people are going to buy it. I think Dan Mullen is yeah. like that. Like he has a big ego. Yeah, he thinks like, he knows everything. He, I think that's that's exactly what I think. I think it's the ego and the arrogance. He thinks he's the smartest person out there, smartest person in the league and in college football. And if they lose, it's not because he got out coached or outsmarted. It was because somebody cheated him. Like yep. right, the, the referee's made a horrible fault. call. Right, it can't be right. And that comes back. You mentioned the accountability. And this is what I'm saying with Kirby Smart. It's like. Say what you want about Kirby Smart. The man is not perfect. But when George, like we have idiot, we, I shouldn't say idiot, but we have players who do dumb things, uh, i.e. George Pickens, okay? Yes, George Pickens squirted somebody in the face of the water like a child. But Kirby Smart, when asked about it, he addressed it head on and said, yeah, that was dumb. We don't want our players doing things like that. We've got to be more disciplined. He should not have done that. When it happened last year against Georgia Tech and throws guy into the wall, Kirby Smart owned it, said, we've got to do a better job of getting George to understand that he's got to grow up. Dan Mullen, on the other hand, sits there and makes excuses for his players, acts like it never happened, or, or first acts like it never happens, and then goes back and says, oh, well, no, I, I went back and watched it, and it wasn't, no, there wasn't a penalty. He was just making a football play. Dude, he took the, the shoe and was chucked it 20 yards, chucked it 20 the yards on the field, it, it, like showboating, essentially, like basically get out of here. We, we just stopped you on third down. We're going to get the ball back and we're going to win the game. Like, come on. That's clearly unsportsmanlike conduct. Like, to make the excuse and to not hold your players accountable for that, at least publicly, that engenders that kind of behavior on your team. And that's one of the reasons that Florida is a program right now that's a good program. Dan Mullen is a good football coach. He's a good X's and O coach. There's no getting around that. I'm not here to disparage him in that regard whatsoever. But if you listen to some of the insiders on the Florida program, disorganized is a word you hear a lot. There's a reason that he has trouble recruiting because he's just – here's what I would say about Dan Mullen too. He's just an awkward person. Not only is it, is, is it arrogance, but it's – Awkwardness. And look, there's nothing wrong with being awkward. I'm, I mean, I am living proof that you can be awkward. I am an extraordinarily awkward person. I, I trust me, I know that. I have that self awareness. But Dan Mullen's awkwardness is mixed with arrogance. And so it makes it kind of, it makes it very distasteful. Like you can be awkward and it can be like an endearing awkwardness, right? But yeah. Dan Mullen is that kind of arrogant, imperious awkwardness that is a turnoff to people. And he's just clueless. He just lives in his own planet. And yes, he is the crown prince of clowns. I mean, that's that's exactly what he is. I mean, move over, Joker. Oh, that's a Batman reference. I don't know if you're familiar with comic books at all. No, not really. Clown prince of crime. Yeah, no. Well, I, I made a little play on words there. Anyway, regardless. The listeners enjoyed it. I, I hope. I, I don't know. Maybe people don't like comic it. books. Yeah, that's over your head. 
or not over your head, just out of your area of expertise. Yeah. But yeah, Dan Mullen, I'm sorry. Like, it's, it was hilarious. Like when when you saw it happen, like what was your reaction? Like in, in, in that moment. I was very happy. My it was like I know this is a podcast, so it's a medium where you, it's not a visual medium. You can't see what I'm doing. My hands are on my face, like like Macaulay Culkin, Home Alone, like not screaming, just like silent, mouth wide open. And then after I kind of just realized what just happened, I started like cracking up relentlessly. Well, for and the funny part too was when the ref was announcing the penalty, oh my and he God. was like. For throwing a shoe 20 yards down the field. Number 11 threw a shoe 20 yards down the field. Oh, my God. Did he really? Can you imagine the referee in that moment trying to, like, how do I say what he's happened? Speci- he's being very specific. Yeah, let me, just, let me just be honest and tell you what happened. He threw a shoe 20 yards down the field. It's like, all right, man. And, look, players do dumb things that cost you games. Like, Felipe Franks did that many times, but not, like, that level of dumb. And for them to not only lose a game because of that, but lose a game to a vastly inferior program, or uh, I shouldn't say program, inferior team this year, and to do so and essentially knock themselves out of the college playoff, barring some crazy haywireness happening over the next couple of weeks, that's got to be an all-timer. Yep. And it couldn't have happened to a better guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just couldn't have happened to a better guy. I don't know. It's interesting, man. But we have a, we actually have a couple questions about Florida later on the show. We'll get to that. But we had to at least open with a little bit of that talk. Because, I mean, you just... You can't ignore that. You can't ignore that. But all right, Charlie, we've got a ton of questions to get to today. We've got a long list of questions. We're going to try our best to get to each and every one of them. And guys, I know some of you were recording this Monday afternoon, so if you send this in after then, uh, if you send your question in after this point, we missed it. We'll try to get to it later on this week. We'll have a couple more episodes. We'll try to get to some of those questions. And uh, I know some people sent some similar questions in, like always, so we try to make sure we spread the love as much as we can. So please don't have your feelings hurt um, if we might have skipped your questions. If you sent multiple questions in or kind of just combine a couple questions sometimes to get all the questions in, we have to do those kind of things. No offense, I promise. We love everyone. But uh, thanks for sending these questions in, guys. You guys never let us down. Got a lot to get to. Charlie, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to turn this over to you. What you got for us? Well, as you might imagine, with the early signing period starting on Wednesday, we have a number of recruiting questions this week. So we're going to open with that. First up, Terry asks, who does Georgia close with on signing day this week? And will it close with a bang or with a whimper? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Obviously, recruiting is going to take center stage here over the next week. It's weird this early signing period this year. A lot of things. Everything is weird about this year. But with the early signing period, we got a ton of teams across the country still playing while you're trying to close out maybe not an entire class because we still have the late signing period in February, but this year with COVID, I imagine a lot of guys are probably going to go ahead and commit early uh, during this early signing period. There's a couple of guys, some big name guys I know are going to try to take the distance. I think Corey Foreman is going to take the distance. Obviously, he's one of the top recruits in the country, but I think a lot of teams are going to be closing out their classes while they're still trying to play football games. That is a lot of stress, a lot on the plate of the college football coaches and programs. But obviously, recruiting is going to take center stage here, at least for a couple of days. And then once we get to the weekend, then we'll have the championship games. And that will be all important at that point. But for a couple of days, recruiting is going to take the spotlight. And when you're asking the question, like, is Georgia going to close with a bang or a whimper? I get where you're coming from. But I think we, like, some of us are still kind of getting ourselves in the mentality that we have Kirby Smart as our head coach. It doesn't mean that we're going to get everyone that we want. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. He is not. And we're not always going to get everyone we want. We're going to miss on some guys. But I think the the whimper thing, like closing with a whimper, like that is kind of how we were conditioned. I know that's how I was conditioned under Mark Rick. Rick did a good job recruiting. I'm not trying to hammer Mark Rick. I love Mark Rick, and I think he did a really good job recruiting. He just wasn't a Kirby Smart level recruiter. And far too often, we would close 
with a whimper under Mark Rick. That is fact. That is true. Rarely do we close with a bang. Under Kirby Smart, almost annually, year in, year out, we are closing with a bang. Whether it's a big flip, a surprise commitment, landing some of our biggest targets, we are closing strong under Kirby Smart. And we just need to get used to that. That is that is the way it's going to be. Again, we're not this means we're gonna get everybody we want on signing day. We've missed on some guys. Trey Sanders. A couple of years ago, I think I hear he's actually potentially going to enter enter the transfer portal now out of Alabama. But uh, we thought we had his commitment, at least a silent. Then on signing day, he's going to Alabama. Like we don't get everybody, but we get a bunch of guys that we are after late in the cycle, and often we are closing with a flurry. And I don't expect that to really change this year. Now we don't have a ton of spots right now, so it might not be the biggest splash of all time like it was a couple years ago with that 2018 class in the early signing period where we really did essentially get everybody. At least it seemed that way. But we're still going to finish really strong, guys. There's a couple of big names that are left out there. We have a couple spots, and we're reserving those for some big, big-time guys. Whether it's Xavier Sori, who we discussed last week, Diamond Edwards, the running back from from Michigan, Mason Smith, even lineman from Louisiana. There's a bunch of guys that Corey Foreman still in play. I don't love our chances there, but he's still in play. But if I had to pick right now, so we got 20 commitments right now. I think we're probably going to end up with a class of 22 or 23 guys, depending on who those guys are and try to save some spots for the transfer market, which I think is something that Kirby's going to start doing moving forward with the likelihood that we're going to have that one-time penalty-free transfer waiver passed for next season. So I think your season going to hold a couple of spots open. I think Xavier Sori, I don't want to say he's in the bag. I feel I feel strongest about him. He's a top 20 prospect nationally. He's an inside linebacker from Florida. Really, really like this guy. He's moved up the ratings throughout this cycle, and I, I'm very high on what he can do with his athleticism, with his ability to be... Uh, a downhill linebacker as well. I think he's a guy that could be a three down inside linebacker. And those are the guys you need at that position in this modern age of football. I feel pretty strongly about him from what I'm hearing. Again, guys, I always say this. I always put this disclaimer out there. Curtis, Charlie, and I, we are not like recruiting analysts. So in terms of like where these guys are going to go, I kind of just read between the lines, follow the tea leaves, and uh, just kind of report what I'm hearing from recruiting writers who do this for a living. I'm much more confident on my ability to evaluate these players as prospects. But from what I'm hearing, it looks like Xavier Sori is a guy that we're going to end up landing. Dominic Edwards is a guy that, I, I mean, with the season Michigan's having, that's the thing, with the season Michigan's having, the the uncertainty with Jim Harbaugh's future at Michigan, like, even if he comes back next year, like how much longer is he going to be there? I mean, this guy is like Gus Malzahn. He's on the hot seat annually, it seems like. Even though he wins a bunch of games, he's kind of always on that hot seat because he can't win the right games, can't win the big games consistently, can't get over the hump. So do you want to walk into a situation like that? I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would, even though even if it is the home state school. Mason Smith's a guy that I keep hearing more and more about in terms of our chances. He's uh, one of the top two defensive linemen in the country. Out of Louisiana, it's really tough to get high-level guys out of the state of Louisiana that LSU wants. But right now, I'm, LSU has got a lot of uh, negativity swirling around that program. Even with the win over Florida, I, honestly, one of the first things I thought with that win over Florida is like, oh my God, I hope this doesn't like encourage Eric Gilbert to come back and Mason Smith to jump back on board. I hope they, I hope they don't sell that to those guys. And I don't know if one game has that much of an impact. I don't think that it does, but I did think that. I mean, I was happy to see Florida lose, obviously, but those thoughts did cross my mind when it came to recruiting with that coming up this week. But Mason Smith's a guy that I don't know with, with the Title IX situation going on there, with some of the negativity swirling around that program. But I just keep hearing more and more smoke around Georgia and Mason Smith right now. It might turn out to be nothing, but a lot of times that smoke does turn out to be something. Like with Eric Gilbert, at first we just heard a bunch of rumors or a smoke around. Is Eric Gilbert potentially going to transfer? Is he going to opt out? We just don't know if he's going to transfer, but he has opted out. That smoke turned out to be real. They're trying to be a fire there. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one, but I think we have a better shot with Mason Smith at even to tackle than a lot of people think. 
in the Dom Edwards, I feel pretty good about our chances there too. Uh, I don't. I certainly don't feel as strong about Edwards and Smith as I do Xavier and Sorry. If we don't end up landing Edwards or Smith, there's a couple other guys to watch out for. Jimmy Horn Jr. is a guy that's kind of come on the radar late in this process. He's not a big dude. He's a wide receiver out of Florida, 5'9", about 160, 165 pounds. He's not even ranked nationally in the 247 composite. But if you turn on the guy's tape, he is an electric jitterbug type receiver out of the slot position. If you're looking for a slot receiver, a guy that can be one of those new age slot receivers that can run the option routes, the whip routes, can can be like a Kadarius Tony type. Now, he's not quite as big as Tony, but think about how effectively Florida has used Kadarius Tony on the slot this year. I mean, really, it's two guys on the, on that Florida offense. I mean, you have Kyle Trask, but in terms of receivers, it's Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony. The other guys just compliment Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts. If you focus so much attention on those two guys, the other guys get man-on-man coverage, and, and then they can make some plays and those opportunities. But that's those guys are the focal point. It's Kadarius Tony, it's Kyle Pitts. And if, think about it, guys. If we can land Eric Gilbert, a guy like Jimmy Horn Jr. could be a nice compliment for that. And Gilbert, who knows? We have a question about that later on. I don't know. We'll get to that later. But Jimmy Horn Jr. is a guy to keep your eye on. I, I would, for one, would be very excited about him. That's one of the reasons I was excited to take a guy like Ladd McConkie last year, because I think he can be that type of guy. I know he didn't see much playing time this year, but I've, I've heard some good positive things about him and his development throughout this season. So Jimmy Horn Jr. would be a guy to certainly watch for. He's also a guy that can contribute in the, in the return game as well. But I only think we go there if we miss on some of the bigger targets. I know Corey Foreman's a guy that a lot of people are, are salivating over, and there is some smoke around him and Mason Smith this weekend. Are they, are they in Athens? Are they not in Athens? And you hear conflicting reports there. I can't confirm or deny or whatever. I, I didn't see him around Athens. Some people said they were. Some people said they weren't. I don't know. But I know that both guys are considering us. I feel better about our chances with Mason Smith than I do with Corey Foreman. I, from what I understand, it seems like Clemson's kind of trending back there. He was originally committed to Clemson, decommits, but it looks like he might be trending back in that direction. Obviously, he's a California kid. USC's having a good year, so USC is going to be in the picture as well. But if he decides to leave the state of California, I think we have a shot. I would give Clemson a better shot, but we're certainly in that conversation. Him and Mason Smith are pretty tight. So there's a bunch of big names out there. Uh, I think the biggest ones to watch would be Xavier Sawyer. I feel best about him. Dominic Edwards, Mason Smith, and if we don't get, if we miss on some of those guys, look for a guy like Jimmy Horn Jr. potentially get an offer. I don't think we need to take another wide receiver, but if we have a spot, he might get one of those spots. So a lot to watch, and of course, we'll cover that later on this week with a signing day recap once all the hay is in the barn, so to speak. And wow, I cannot believe I just said that. But anyway, Charlie, what's next? Next up, Zach asks, what are your thoughts on Mason Smith? How good is he? Mason Smith is a beast, man. He's a, he's a dominant interior defensive lineman. The guys, he's number 18 nationally overall in 247 composite, number two defensive tackle in the country, 6'5", about 315, 320, somewhere in there. And this guy is a dominant interior defensive lineman. And when we're losing a guy like Jordan Davis, we need guys like that. Now, Mason Smith is not the size of Jordan Davis. He's not the same kind of player. But you add him onto a defensive line with guys like Jalen Carter and Warren Brinson and Zion Logue, Trayvon Walker, some of those kind of guys. And man, that defensive line all of a sudden becomes absolutely nasty. I mean, he's big, he's physical. He also has that elite first step quickness. I mean, he's the total package at defensive tackle right now. And you just can't get enough of those guys. And if we were able to pull him, I mean, think about all the consternation for so many years when we first hired Trey Scott, all the talk about, man, this guy can't recruit, he can't hack it, got to get rid of him. Can we just put that to bed at this point? I mean, yeah, there were some there were some classes early on when he got the job here that maybe we weren't landing the elite guys. But you have to remember, he had no track record to speak of. He couldn't sell to any prospects out there that, hey, look, I put this guy in the NFL. Hey, look, I developed this guy. Now that he's done that, he's put some guys in the league, and you you develop a guy like Jordan Davis who potentially could be a first-round draft pick if he decides to come out. We'll see where he lands. I think he has that potential. 
and you also have the Georgia brand to sell and you've polished your game as a recruiter learning under Kirby Smart, that is a thing of the past. We need to put that to bed, guys. I mean, landing Tyrion Ingram Dawkins, landing Javon Walker a couple of years ago, landing Jalen Carter, big time guy that stayed of Florida. If he can swing Mason Smith, like forget about it, man. Look, and it's not a done deal by no means. I mean, we're in it, but I, LSU might, probably should be considered the favorite right now, but we are certainly in it from everything I hear. And the fact that we're in it this much with a guy like Mason Smith, if we somehow end up landing him, I mean, Trey Scott, dude, this guy has really turned around on the recruiting trail. Got to give him a lot of credit. But Mason Smith as a prospect, he's a big time guy. He's, he's a potential dominant force on the interior of a defensive line. And we have a couple of those guys already at him to the equation. And man, just watch out, guys. Watch out. Next up, Guy asks about Brock's game. He would like you to break it down just a little bit. And give some info on his arm strength, accuracy, decision-making, intangibles, and athleticism all separately. He's just trying to understand what we are getting with such a high-ranked recruit. Yeah, thanks for the question, man. This is a good, this is a really good question. I mean, we hear a lot about Brock Vandegrift and him being the leader of this recruiting class, but like, how good is he really? Like, what is his game all about? That's a, that's a great question. So. Vandegrift, man, like every time I watch this guy, I come away more and more impressed. I know we're a Georgia podcast. It's easy to say that. And you can call me a homer if you want. That's fine. Whatever. But I try to be as objective as I possibly can with these guys. And when I watch Brock Vandegrift, I get more and more excited every time I see the guy play. And it's He's the total package. I mean, he's a guy that has a good arm. I'm not going to say it's a Matthew Stafford level arm, but a really good arm. This guy can rifle the ball in there. That's not the most important attribute of a quarterback, but it's one that people talk about a lot. He's got good size. He's not 6'5 or 6'6 or somebody. He's, he's a good 6'2 to 6'3, about 200, 210 pounds. And the guy is built. I mean, if you guys have actually seen him, this guy is a, he's a weight room warrior. And this guy hits the weights hard. And you love to see that with a quarterback. You don't like to see your quarterbacks necessarily all jacked up, but the fact that he attacks the weight room like that kind of sets the tone for your team. You love a guy with a work ethic like that who just puts the work in, does the dirty work. A lot of quarterbacks are the prima donnas. They don't really get into that kind of thing. That's not Vandegrift. Vandegrift will get in there and he will go to work. He's also a dual threat guy. He does not get enough credit for his ability to run the football. Now, is he a Justin Fields level athlete? No, he's not. But he is more than adequate as a runner. I mean, he's got good speed. He moves well laterally. He also runs with power. This guy is not afraid to put his shoulder down and run through somebody. Now, obviously in the SEC, you're not going to want him to do that a ton because you will get lit up and get hurt. But, you know, we saw a couple times, and I, and I hate, see, I'm not trying to throw Dwan Mathis under, under the rug here, because Dwan's a great young man. I'm really excited for him to go to Temple and, and start the next chapter. I wish him the absolute best, but, you know, go back to the, obviously he had brain surgery, so it's a totally different scenario, but a couple of times this year, whether it was against Arkansas, against Florida, had a chance to get a first down, running the football, and you step out of bounds a yard or so early. Brock Van Griff is not going to do that, guys. He's going to put his shoulder down. He's going to get that first down, because that's kind of just ingrained in his DNA. He's a tough hard-nosed football player. Uh, he lives in the Athens area, obviously goes to Prince Avenue. So I know a few people, I don't know him personally, but I know a few people that do. Uh, and I work with some kids that, that know him. And he's just he's just a tough dude, man. He's he's not 100% right now, but he's out there playing and, and, and playing as physically as he possibly can. He's a leader. He's that kind of guy. Guys will gravitate around him. He has kind of that charisma, that, that extra something. He's accurate with the football. I think he throws a really nice deep ball. I mean, this guy is the total package, and I am so excited about getting him in here, not just because of the physical attributes, which which are plentiful, but really just, just the things that he brings to the table from an intangible standpoint, the work ethic, the way he leads. He's the kind of guy that you want leading your program, and I think we are going to be in really, really good hands 
for the next couple of years at quarterback, and I'm really, really excited about him. And let's not forget that Lincoln Riley was recruiting him, right? He was committed to Oklahoma initially and then decommitted. Does Lincoln Riley miss on quarterbacks, guys? Like, when's the last time that Lincoln Riley has missed on a quarterback evaluation? When? Can you, can you name a time? Because I, I can't think of something off the top of my head. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. I'm missing something. But at least during his time at Oklahoma, I, that guy has not missed with a quarterback eval. So if, that, if Brock was the guy that he zeroed in on first, now they got Caleb Williams, but they zeroed in on Brock first, that should tell you something there as well. Don't just listen to me. Don't take my word for it. Take Lincoln Riley's word for it. And our last recruiting question is from Witt. How likely is it that we get Eric Gilbert and B.J. Ojolari from LSU this offseason? Yeah, man, wouldn't that be awesome? And I know a lot of you are saying, well, this is not a recruiting question. I mean, this is, this is a transfer question. But it is a recruiting question because in the day and age of the transfer portal, especially now if guys are going to get that one-year penalty-free transfer, one-time penalty-free transfer, which seems like that's going to pass. It's just a matter of when they get to actually passing, which I think is going to happen this year. But you recruit the transfer portal. It's like recruiting guys all over again. I guess you can pick up where you left off, but that's still recruiting. You're trying to get, you're trying to recruit guys to your program, whether they're from the high school ranks, or they're from other programs, that's recruiting. So definitely let's include this in the, in the recruiting questions. And look, I, I would love to get both Eric Gilbert and BJ Ojolari. I think Oj- I think BJ Ojolari is a better pure pass rusher than his brother Aziz here in Athens. I think Aziz is a more complete overall player in terms of playing the run. He's thicker, he's stronger, he he's he does that. He's more of an all-around type outside linebacker prospect. But in terms of like explosiveness rushing the passer, I think BJ is a little bit more explosive rushing the passer, a little more fluid in his movements as well. I feel a lot better about our chances with Eric Gilbert. And that even Eric Gilbert's not a done deal. I, I, first off, again, he's not officially in the transfer portal yet. That has not happened. It might end up happening. It's probably more likely than not. But even if he doesn't end up in the transfer portal, which he hasn't yet, that doesn't mean we're going to get him. I think if he transfers uh, because he wants to be closer to home, I think we'd be the obvious landing spot. And that seems to be the case. Like he just, he's homesick. He wants to be near his family. So that would make sense. But we didn't. From my understanding, we did not finish second, even the runner-up in his recruitment. We were in his recruitment the entire way, but Alabama, I believe, ended up second there. Tennessee was a big-time player. He's a bunch of his former teammates, Harrison Bailey, for instance, up at up in Knoxville, playing with the Tennessee Volunteers. And Bailey might or might not be the heir apparent. I don't know. So Tennessee would be a team to watch for. Alabama would be a team to watch for. But if it truly is about getting closer to home and being homesick, I mean, Georgia makes a lot of sense, right? Like, if that's the rationale you're using for transferring, I think Georgia makes a lot of sense. I know LSU's further away than Alabama. I know it's further away than Knoxville, but Georgia's also, like, right here, you know? So I feel much better about our chances to land him. Again, not a done deal. I'm not not counting on that yet. I'm not getting my hopes up, but I think we have a good shot if he ends up entering the transfer portal, which still hasn't happened yet, but it could. Very well could and probably will end up happening. Ojolari, though, I don't know. We didn't really recruit him as heavily as... We did Aziz. We really didn't recruit him all that heavily at all, honestly. We, we were kind of stacked at, at outside linebacker, and he just didn't l- listen as much to us. Maybe we kind of want to go do his own thing, separate from his brother, kind of branch out and uh, make it make his name for himself somewhere else. That's certainly a possibility. So I just, I, even if Ojolari did end up going to the transfer portal, guys, he played last week against Florida, so I don't know. But even if he does, I don't know if I like our chances as much as I do our chances with Gilbert, even though his brother plays here, we just weren't as much of a factor in his recruitment initially. Maybe that could change. And I don't know. I don't have the inside story, but just kind of looking back at history and looking at how that initial recruitment went down, I just don't know if we would be that landing spot, but it sure would be awesome, man. Um, we're, we're still loaded outside linebacker. I mean, if, if we lose Aziz and we lose Jermaine Johnson, we're not going to be as loaded. We still have Nolan Smith, got MJ Sherman in the pipeline. So BJ would be great, um, but I just, I don't know if I would count on that one. 
Our next two questions are looking down the road to bowl season. First up, Alexander asks, who are your preferred bowl game matchups? Well, my preferred bowl game, well, guys, we're gonna, unless we lose to Vanderbilt or whoever we might end up playing, which I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced we're going to play it all this weekend, but unless we end up losing this game this weekend, which is highly, highly unlikely at this point, we're going to be in a New Year's Six Bowl game. So what that means is either the Peach Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, or the Fiesta Bowl. We're not going to be in the Sugar Bowl. We're not going to be in the Rose Bowl because those, those are the semifinal games this year for the Coshwell Playoff. And we're not going to be in the Coshwell Playoff. That sucks, but that's reality. We're not going to be there. So it's one of those four New Year's Six Bowl games. And if I had my choice, personally, selfishly, this is Tyler and his selfish choice, I want the Cotton Bowl. I want the Cotton Bowl because I've never been there. I haven't been in the Orange Bowl either, but I would rather go to the Cotton Bowl because... The Orange Bowl, from my understanding and in my knowledge of Miami, is nowhere near anything down there. Um, you can go to South Beach, you can go to Miami Beach, you can go to Fort Lauderdale, but the day of the game is like you go to the game and that's almost it because it takes 45 minutes to an hour and a half being on traffic to get to the Orange Bowl. It's just kind of down the middle of nowhere. And like, and for some people, that's fine, but that's just not what I'm about. I want to be as close to the stadium and like the fun entertainment in district as I possibly can. Look, I know Jerry World is not necessarily right there in Fort Worth or Dallas, but it's much closer, right? So you can hang out Sunday in Square, have a good time there, and then make your way over the game. I've never been to Jerry World. I've always wanted to go to Jerry World. I've always wanted us to play one of those uh, Cowboy Classic games uh, to open the season. I know we played the Peach Bowl a lot. We play in Charlotte next year. I always want us to do one of those in, in Texas and Dallas there, but we haven't done that. So that would be, selfishly for me, that would be my choice this year. Orange Bowl would be great. Um, it'd be fine. It'd be good. It would it, To me, the Cotton Bowl would be more fun. Orange Bowl would be nice as well. I don't care for the Peach Bowl. I do not want the Peach Bowl. I know a lot of Georgia fans want the Peach Bowl because it's, uh, it's in the state of Georgia, which makes sense. But I've made my... Feelings on Atlanta and games Atlanta very well known, but I'll say it again for newer listeners. I just don't care about going to Atlanta for for Georgia football games. I mean, I go because it's Georgia football games and I'm going to be there, but it does nothing for me. It's not like the game is fun. Everything around the game is not fun because there's no entertainment district around the state. Like the state of Atlanta has done a whole, it's just a terrible setup to go to a game. Like the stadium is really nice. I really like Mercedes Benz, but the, the setup around it is nothing. If you go to some of these other cities, whether it's Phoenix, with what they have, the University of Phoenix, well, formerly University of Phoenix Stadium, I forget what it's called now. But a lot of these stadiums have like these entertainment districts built around them. We don't have that in Atlanta. They don't have that in Miami either. So with Atlanta, like, yeah, I know it's convenient. It's an hour and a half away from Athens. That's great. I can drive in and out. But like driving in and out for a game, for again, this is just me, my preferences. This is kind of what I do. This is what's fun for me. Uh, what's fun for other people might be totally different. And, I, and I, that's that's cool. It's awesome. But for me, I just don't get as much enjoyment out of driving to Atlanta, watching the game, and then driving back home. It's just not as fun for me. I like the experience of the, of the whole weekend, seeing something different. I've just been to so many Georgia games in Atlanta, whether it was the Georgia Dome, now Mercedes Benz. Like it just, it's it's old hat for me. I just I don't enjoy it as much as going to new places, going to different places that I haven't gone before. So for me, I'm hoping for the Cotton Bowl or the Orange Bowl. Fiesta Bowl, I would say the Fiesta Bowl because they have a really nice setup there as well. But the Fiesta Bowl is not. They've already announced they're not having fans at all. So. I wouldn't be going to it because they're not allowing fans in. So that's why I don't want the Fiesta Bowl. Otherwise, I would be rooting for the Fiesta Bowl over the Peach Bowl. I know that makes me different than most Georgia fans. Like, hey, it's Peach Bowl. You can go to the game, right? Yeah, I get that. But that's just my selfish personal view on what game I hope that we are in. Plus, if we play in the Peach Bowl, we're almost certainly playing a group of five team, which would be what Cincinnati, Coastal, depending on what happens this this weekend and championship weekend. Uh, maybe, maybe it could be Louisiana. And I, I just, like, that's a, that's, 
That's a no-win proposition for us. Like you're supposed to win that game if you win. No one gives you any credit for it if you lose. Then everyone points and laughs at you. And it's the biggest game in the history of those programs. They're trying to make a point, and like it just that's just a no-win proposition for us. So it's in, it would be in Atlanta. It's a place I have no interest in going to. Playing a team that I really have no interest in watching us play, and a team that no one will give us credit for beating because you're Georgia and you're supposed to beat those teams. No one will even really hardly take notice. So it'll probably be the Peach Bowl, but that's not what I want. Nobody cares what I want, and I don't matter. I don't get a say in it. But if you're asking me my personal preference, that would be my preference. Let's follow that up with a question from Steven. He wants to know where you think Georgia will end up for the bowl game. All right. Thank you for this question, Steven. So this is obviously the logical extension to the last question from Alexander, who are your preferred bowl matchups versus where do I actually think Georgia will end up in the bowl season? There are a lot of moving parts to this, and they are still very much working themselves out right now. I do also want to say there is a lot of misinformation and just flat-out misunderstanding out there regarding how the New Year Six selection process is structured in the college football playoff era. I mean, I can't tell you how many times on social media, on message boards, well, among the national media, like these national college football prognosticators, cannot tell you how many times I have seen just flat out wrong statements made. And that's okay. Look, I know it's a different era. We've only been in the college football playoff for what, like six years now? And people were conditioned for the BCS era, but this is not the BCS era. The New Year's Six selection process is very, very different. A lot of people just seem to think that the bowl games, like these New Year's Six bowl games, whether it's the Orange Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, they still kind of just have a draft and pick what teams they want for their bowl games. And that was kind of how it was with the BCS. That's not at all how the selection process works for the New Year's Six and the college football playoff era. There are contracts that specify which teams play in which games. And then the college football playoff committee, they are the ones who place the at-large teams in the at-large bowl. So like this year, the Cotton Bowl and the Peach Bowl, are they are at-large bowl games. There's no contract. Like there's no like contract that says a Big 12 team goes here or an SEC team goes there. The College Football Playoff Committee will place teams in those bowl games based on a variety of factors. They look at location. They, that's certainly something they consider. The entertainment value, the matchup of the game, all those are factors that they consider in placing those teams in the at-large New Year's Six Bowl games. The Orange Bowl is not an at-large game. There is a contract with the Orange Bowl that determines what teams get into that game. And of course, the teams that get into that game, that impacts who gets into the Peach Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, all the other at-large games. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. I want to try to clear that up for some people. So the Orange Bowl, the way it works for the Orange Bowl, with their contract, they have a contract with the ACC. The Orange Bowl gets the top-ranked non-playoff ACC team. And that's according to the college playoff rankings. We're not talking about the AP people. We're talking about the college playoff rankings. They get the top-ranked, highest-ranked non-playoff ACC team versus the highest-ranked non-playoff SEC, Big Ten, or Notre Dame. Okay, that's how the Orange Bowl works. Okay, the Peach and Cotton Bowl, like I said, those have two at-large berths each. Okay, the Cotton Bowl has got two at-large teams. The Peach Bowl has two at-large teams. Those teams have to be ranked inside the top 12 or the top-ranked group of five team. Okay, now the team, it is true that the team higher in the rankings usually has a say in where they go when it comes to the at-large bowls like they don't have the final so they can't just like pick and say we want to go here they can certainly advise and say we would prefer this destination but again the college playoff committee has final decision power when it comes to where those teams are placed in the new year six bowls 
So let's look at this year right now, okay? So with North Carolina destroying Miami at Miami over the weekend, there's a really good chance that North Carolina is going to leap Miami in the college football playoff rankings that come out Tuesday night. Uh, last week, North Carolina was 17, Miami was 10. That, that's a pretty big difference. There are seven spots. But the way that North Carolina just destroyed Miami, I mean, they ran for over 500 yards on Miami, put up over 60 points at Miami. So I think there's a really good chance that North Carolina will jump over Miami in this week's college football playoff rankings. I know that they have one more loss, but they also had to play Notre Dame, which Miami did not. So I think North Carolina will probably jump Miami and they will represent the ACC in the Orange Bowl as the highest ranked non-playoff ACC team. Now, the only way it's not Miami or North Carolina is let's say if Clemson loses to Notre Dame, that's two losses to Notre Dame, and they get left out of the top four, they're not in the college football playoff, well then they would then be the top ranked ACC team that's not in the college football playoff, and they would be in the Orange Bowl. So Clemson, there is a scenario where they end up in the college football playoff. There's also a scenario where they end up out of the college football playoff. If they're not in the college football playoff, Clemson will be in the Orange Bowl by virtue of the contract, the ACC has the Orange Bowl. But if Clemson beats Notre Dame, which right now I probably lean towards Clemson winning that game, then Clemson and Notre Dame, I think, probably are both in the college football playoff. We'll see how that works out, but they're two and three right now. Notre Dame's already beat Clemson. Clemson beats them. You got two teams with one loss, the ACC, uh, that losing to each other. I think they're probably both in. In that case, it's going to be either Miami or North Carolina in the Orange Bowl for the ACC, and I think North Carolina will jump them this week. We'll see how that happens. But I know that you guys don't really care about that. You care about where does Georgia end up. So there is a chance that Georgia could end up in the Orange Bowl. It's my, it might not be likely, but there is a chance. The biggest piece of this in terms of what ha, where does Georgia end up is what happens to Texas A&M. If Texas A&M sneaks in the college football playoff, then that opens up some real possibilities for Georgia to potentially be in the Orange Bowl. But here's what is probably likely to happen. We're not going to be ranked ahead of Texas A&M, guys, unless they screw up and lose to Tennessee. Possible, but highly unlikely, right? Like, you got to say it's possible after what happened with LSU in Florida, but still I would say highly unlikely they lose to Tennessee. If A&M survives Tennessee, they win that game, they are certainly going to be ranked ahead of us. There's no question there. The only question is, do they get in the cultural playoff or not? Let's say that A&M does not get in the cultural playoff. Let's say it's the status quo. You've got uh, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State. I don't think Ohio State should be in, but they're in the top four right now. What has happened between last week and this week for A&M to jump Ohio State? I, I, I don't think anything has, so I don't think it's going to happen. So let's say AM sticks at number five. Well, that that would make them the top ranked SEC Big Ten or Notre Dame team that's not in the college football playoff. Therefore, they would go to the Orange Bowl to face either North Carolina or Miami. Okay. That's how that would work. There's no, oh well, Florida is from the state of Florida. It just makes sense that the Orange Bowl would want Florida. That's just not how it works. If Florida is ranked ahead of AM, they would go to the Orange Bowl, but they are not going to be ranked ahead of AM. They have two losses, probably gonna have three after this week in the SEC Championship game. They lost head to head to Texas AM. AM, if they do not end up in the cultural playoff, if they beat Tennessee, will end up in the Orange Bowl. And they're likely gonna be playing North Carolina or Miami. However, Let's say there's a scenario where AM somehow ends up in the college football playoff. Okay. Let's say that Notre Dame beats Clemson again. I, I would pick Clemson right now, I think, but I mean, that's not a guarantee. Notre Dame's beat them once. 
They could absolutely do it again. I know the first game was in South Bend, but it's possible. They, they could win that game again. I don't think Clemson's as good this year as they have been in the past couple years. So let's say Notre Dame wins that game. Clemson now has two losses, both losses to Notre Dame. I think Clemson drops out. I could be wrong. I don't know. I think Clemson drops out. They have two losses. They've already had two shots in Notre Dame. I think in that scenario, an 8-1 and A&N team with a win over Florida even though that Florida win maybe doesn't look as good now after the loss to LSU, I think AM would jump up into that four spot. I think they jump in the college playoff. If that happens, then what will matter for the Orange Bowl is where are Georgia and Florida ranked? Okay, where are Georgia and Florida ranked? Because if that happens and AM gets in, Clemson, like I said, Clemson would go to the Orange Bowl then because they'd be the highest ranked non-playoff ACC team. They would knock out Miami or North Carolina. And then AM's in the playoffs. So that means it's going to be either Georgia or Florida will be the highest ranked non-playoff ACE or SEC Big Ten or Notre Dame team, right? And so what I really think Bears watching this week when the college playoff rankings are released on Tuesday night is where is Florida in the college football playoff rankings relative to Georgia? Where are they? How close are we to Florida in the rankings? How far does Florida drop? Because if we are within a spot of Florida, let's look at last week's rankings. So Florida came in number six, we were number nine, okay? You had Iowa State and Cincinnati coming in at seven and eight, respectively. I think after that loss to LSU, Florida's going to drop below Iowa State. They're going to drop below Cincinnati. That's my opinion. We'll see. I think that's going to happen. I think Florida will drop to probably number eight at least. I don't think they will drop Florida below us because Florida did beat us head to head. I think Florida will be number eight. I think we'll probably be number nine. That's what I would project. There's a world where we end up number, that we end up ahead of Florida in this in this week's rankings because we have a, a different team now with JT Daniels at quarterback. People are healthy. We're playing a lot better. Uh, the, the committee has taken that into account in rankings in the past. We'll see. But the, the, typically when a team is one head to head and they both have like the same number of losses, especially if you're in the same conference, like, like with A&M and Florida. A&M has been ahead of Florida since the get-go because they beat Florida head to head. I think Florida will probably be ranked ahead of us, but I think they'll be number eight. If they lose to Alabama and they lose big, let's say it's a it's a it's just a whipping that Alabama puts on them. I, I think Florida will actually probably play them pretty close. I think uh, Florida's offense is, is really, really good. And Bama's defense, they've gotten better. They certainly have, but still, it's, it, I'm not a thousand percent sold on them. But for the sake of this argument, let's just say that Florida loses big to Alabama. All right. They get blown out. Well, if they were number eight coming into that game at eight and two, they get blown out by Alabama. They're now eight and three. They have one more loss than us. Yes, they beat us head to head. Yes, that extra loss came in the, in the SEC title game. And it kind of seems like they'd be punished for playing in the SEC title game. Guys, I got news for you. We've been punished for playing in the SEC title game before. That's happened to us. We've got knocked out of the playoffs because of the SEC title game. Cry me a river on that one. I don't care about that. But if they get blown out by Bama and we were in one spot of them, the way we've been playing down the stretch, I think there's a really good chance they would drop below us. I think there is. And if that happens, AM sneaks in the cultural playoff because Notre Dame beats Clemson, Florida gets blown out by Bama. I think there's a world where we jump ahead of Florida in the cultural playoff rankings, which would put us in the Orange Bowl in that scenario. Now, is that the most likely scenario? No, it is not. But it is certainly a realistic scenario. That is not out of the question. So the Orange Bowl is not out of the question for us. Florida losing to LSU opened up some possibilities for us that I don't necessarily think were maybe there before that happened. And yes, guys, I know. I have heard just like you have. I've heard, I've heard all the people say for weeks now, that, well, the Orange Bowl won't pass up Florida, or, well, Florida will want the Orange Bowl because they're in the state of Florida. None of that matters. The Orange Bowl does not get a say in it. There's a contract. None of that matters. All that matters in that situation, if it was down to Georgia and Florida for that Orange Bowl spot, if a and stuck in the college playoff, 
All that matters in that situation is who is ranked higher in the college football playoff at that time. If it's Florida, they'll be in the Orange Bowl. If it's Georgia, we'll be in the Orange Bowl. If, if A&M's not in the, not in the college football playoff, it'll be A&M, they'll be in the Orange Bowl. That's how that's going to work. We just have to see how the rankings play out over the next week here. But let's go with what I think is the most likely scenario. Again, who knows what's going to happen, but I think this is, like if we're handicapping it, I think this is probably the most likely scenario. Let's say the top four stay the top four through this weekend, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State, they all four end up in the college football playoff. A&M stays at number five. They would go in the Orange Bowl. And then that leaves Georgia and Florida to fill out the Peach Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, okay? Again, like I just laid out, if Florida finishes ahead of us, which is possible. If they play if they play Bama closely, they'll probably still finish ahead of us. If it's a blowout, I think we have a chance to jump ahead of them. But if Florida finishes ahead of us, I think I think there's actually a really good chance they would lobby for the Peach Bowl because it's closer to them. Yeah, it's closer to us, but it's also closer to Florida than the Cotton Bowl is. There's financial ramifications with travel associated with that. It's easier for their fans to get to. It just makes a lot of sense if Florida is ranked ahead of us that they will like if they're asked their preference they'll say the they say they will say that they prefer the Peach Bowl. Now again, that doesn't really decide anything. Ultimately, the Cultural Playoff Committee will put teams where they want to put teams based on location and matchups, so on and so forth. But they usually do defer to in most cases to the team that's ranked higher. So if Florida is ranked higher than us and they say, "Hey, Florida, where would you prefer?" And Florida's like, "Well, we would prefer to play in the Peach Bowl because it's Atlanta; it's closer to us." then I think that they would probably, there's a good chance at least, that they would put Florida in the Peach Bowl. I know the the general consensus out there is that Georgia's just going to end up in the Peach Bowl because there's a group of five team playing there. Nobody wants to play there. It's in the state of Georgia, location, COVID, it all just makes sense. Put Georgia in the Peach Bowl. But it, there's, it's just more complicated than that. There are more moving parts than that, okay? The college playoff committee selection process for the new Six Bowl is just different than what the BCS era was. In the BCS era, yeah, the Peach Bowl would say, yeah, we want Georgia. We're trying to sell tickets. But you got to remember, guys, they're not they're not selling a lot of tickets, right? There's not going to be a full crowd there. So that's not really going to – I just don't know how much that's going to factor into it. Again, if Florida's ranked ahead of us, I think they'll, they would probably prefer the Peach Bowl, even though it might be a game against a Cincinnati or a team like that. But for location purposes and for financial purposes in the middle of a pandemic, it makes sense for them to not have to travel as far. And if that happens, then if, and we finish one or two spots behind Florida, I think then we go to the Cotton Bowl, which is, yeah, maybe that's me being biased because that that's my my personal preference. But no, like that's just, I think that's a scenario that could happen. Uh, but if we finish ahead of Florida, then I think we're almost certain. Like if AM finishes number five, they go to the Orange Bowl and we finish ranked ahead of Florida, in the, in the final college playoff rankings, I think we're a lock for the Peach Bowl. And that's probably the most likely outcome. But I don't think it's a done deal. I don't think it's as certain as a lot of people want to make it out to be because there's just a lot of people that don't seem to understand exactly how the college football playoff committee goes about the New Year's Six selection process. So there's there are a lot of options. I try to lay out all the options there for you guys in as much detail as I could, because I just think there's a lot of misinformation. And look, we're also trying to adjust the college football playoff area and how that works. We're just used to be like, hey, if we don't if we don't get in the playoff, that means we lost the SEC championship game. So that means we're going to go to the Sugar Bowl because we're the top ranked non-SEC playoff team, right? So that means we just go to the Sugar Bowl. Well, that's not the case this year because the Sugar Bowl has um, a playoff game, has a semifinal game. So it's a little bit different this year, but that's how that would work. We'll see. I mean, watch the rankings on Tuesday night. That's going to really tell us a lot, give us more information to work on and give us more clues as to where we might end up. And then obviously after the final rankings, that will ultimately determine really it matters where does A&M end up and where does, where, do, where does Florida end up in relation to our final ranking. Those are the two factors. And then once we figure that out, then we can talk about where George is going to end up. But I can tell you exactly where we'll end up. Next, our loyal listener Josh asks, which teams will be our biggest competition in the future? 
says that Florida is a constant. Tennessee is trying to get better. Mizzou looks like they're trying to have a say. And Beamer at South Carolina is going to do his best. What are your thoughts? It would be bad if I said that I'm not scared by any of those programs. I know that's not exactly the question. It's, it's, it's actually a great question, Josh. I really appreciate it, buddy. Good friend of the program, Josh. Always appreciate it, man. But to get to the real question, our biggest competition in the East in the future, I think by default it's probably still got to be Florida. I mean, Dan Mullen, I know we had fun making fun of him here, but he's still a really good offensive coach. He's a good offensive mind. has a great job of scheming things up. Now, he's not always going to have the same person he has offensively, but he, he's a good coach. Uh, but, like, Florida, look, they're never going to recruit at our level under Dan Mullen. They're just not going to. We're going to consistently have a better roster. doesn't mean there's not a year or two here and there where they can just have the stars align, where they have an elite quarterback and things just work out for them and they and they have a Kyle Pitts-type player and and maybe we don't have an answer at quarterback and, and we have a lot of injuries like we had this year. Stars align and, and they win. It happens. But they're not going to consistently control that series. I think we're going to control that series moving forward as long as Kirby Smart's at Georgia and as long as Dan Mullen's at Florida. I think we will turn that back around next year remind everyone who is in control of that series. Uh, and if you look at the rest of the East, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know where the competition would come from. I thought when Pruitt got the job at Tennessee that he would recruit really well, and he has recruited well. Honestly, I thought he would probably recruit better than he has to this point. And he's gotten some good players there, but it's kind of like the Butch Jones situation where he recruited well early but just hasn't been able to translate it to the field. I know they ended on a, on a good note last year, but again, that was playing absolutely nobody, as we talked about all offseason long, and that really played itself out this year. Like how good were they? They really weren't that good. It was all smoke and mirrors. They, just weren't, they weren't beating anybody with a pulse. And they just haven't really been able to consistently translate on the field. And eventually, like, you can sell hope in the future to recruits all you want, but eventually you have to start producing on the field, and that hasn't happened. And I don't, I'm don't, i not convinced that Jeremy Pruitt will be the head coach at Tennessee next year. I, I, I mean, right now he is, but they also have one game left against A&M. We'll see what happens after the A&M game if, if he's going to stick around. Because now that Auburn's fired Gus Malzahn, I mean, the Hugh Freeze race is on. And look, I know Auburn's got a lot of candidates there and it might not be Hugh Freeze, but Tennessee doesn't know that. And if Auburn's already fired their guy, then that could really speed up the sense of urgency within the Tennessee athletic department to try to get out there and get Hugh Freeze if he is indeed the guy that they want. And, I, and I've heard that that he is. Like, I'm not an Tennessee insider or anything, but there's that seems to be the general consensus that is if they move on from Jerry Pruitt, Hugh Freeze is probably going to be a guy that at the very least they take a very strong look at and, try, and of course do their due diligence and all that stuff with his background. But I mean, I'm not convinced that that Jeremy Pruitt is going to be the guy there. And even if he and if he does, like, how is he going to be able to recruit right now? Because I mean, I know he's a good recruiter, but it's kind of like the Gus Malzahn situation where you're just consistently on the hot seat. That like you might find a way to keep your job for another year and keep extending that out, but every year you're just perpetually on the hot seat. Like, what does that do to recruiting? That's why, and that's ultimately what got Gus Malzahn is that like he just their recruiting really fell off the past couple of years, at least relative to all the big time rivals in the SEC that they're trying to keep up with because he's always on the hot seat. And it's very easy to negatively recruit against him. You don't even really have to try to negatively recruit against him when he's on the hot seat each and every year. So I don't think that Tennessee is that program. I know there was a lot of hype for Tennessee coming in this season. I tried to downplay that. I tried to throw some cold water on that. Uh, I told you guys, I just, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. And it, now it's one of those things that, you know, every now and then I get something right. And that's one of those that I got right. And I just don't see it moving forward the next couple of years. Missouri is a team I agree, Josh, that they might look to have a little bit of say here. I like Hunter Basic. I know he didn't have his best game on Saturday, but our defense had something to do with that, guys. Like I told you guys, I still think we have a really good defense. Top, uh, one of the top defenses in the country. 
And, and per- personnel-wise, all up and down that offensive roster, they just don't have the personnel that we do. They have some good players in spots, but they don't have the personnel that we do. But he's going to be a really good player, and I do like Eli Drinkwitz as an offensive coach. I, I like him as a coach in general. They want the offensive route, and that's what you've got to do in this day and age. I mean, honestly, especially for a program like Missouri, you can't just be like a hard-nosed defensive program. Like that's not You're never going to get over the hump doing that at Missouri. Uh, and I think that Eli Drinkwitz gives them a really good chance. So I think that's a program that's going to continue to move forward and build some momentum. But are they going to year in, year out, be like major contenders for the SEC East title? I just, I don't know if I can say that right now. I don't know if I see that. Again, it's a program that can kind of step up every now and then if all things align for them. Maybe, you know, Baisley gets to his junior or senior year and, oh yeah, now they have their role. And maybe, but I don't know, like consistently, are they going to be a, a serious contender and, and serious competition for the SEC East crown? I don't know. And Beamer at South Carolina, I mean, I made it, I told you guys last week, I, I'm, I don't understand the Shane Beamer hire. I just don't get it. Uh, I know that he was at South Carolina before and he um, built some good relationships with some influential people there in Columbia. But I mean, this guy's never been a coordinator on either side of the ball, which doesn't necessarily disqualify you. I mean, Dabo Swinney would be the obvious example there, but it's still really, really rare for that to happen. I mean, he's been an assistant coach his entire career. And he's been a good recruiter, not a, not a bad recruiter. But it, when he was on the staff here in, at Georgia, he did a good job. You know, Luke Ford, um, making sure Isaac Nauta ended up here. Now, of course, those the, did a good job. But he was not the Kirby Smart level recruiter in terms of like the relentlessness, putting the time on the, at least that was the reputation. That's what I heard around town here in Athens is one of the reasons why he decided to move on. And he goes to Oklahoma. So I just, I don't know, man. And again, I go back to like, who was, who was after that guy? Who was after Shane Beam? Like what other options did he have? Like, it's just strange when a program takes a, makes a move like that. And he's not a hot name. No one is really talking about it. It doesn't mean it won't work out, but when you have other names out there that I think have more of a track record and a better resume, it's just really strange. It almost seems like they didn't even hardly really consider those guys. It was almost like it was Beamer from the get-go. Other guys just kind of smoke screens, just names they were kind of doing due diligence on just in case Beamer didn't work out. So I don't know. I just, he might be really good. I just don't know. Like there's no evidence to suggest that that Shane Beamer is going to be a really good coach at South Carolina. Now I do think they have some players there. Bill Muschamp, say what you want about him. He recruited well a relative to South Carolina and what they normally do. He's got some defensive players there, the Zach Pickens of the world, those kind of guys. They got some good players on the defense side of the ball. Now, quarterback's been their issue, just like it has been at Tennessee. But if a new a new coach comes in, a new offensive coordinator, and, and let's say they're able to get Luke Doty to a high level, or maybe Ryan Helinski sticks around and, and battles out uh, Doty now that they have a new coordinator coming in, or probably a new coordinator is what it looks like. Maybe one of those guys um, turns out to be the answer. And if they if they do, then then that can be a pretty quick turnaround. They can be like an 8-4 and four team pretty quickly because they do have some talent. They just don't have the quarterback right now. But – I haven't seen anything from, from Doty or Helinski to, to suggest to me that they're going to be the answer at quarterback. I told you guys that last year about Helinski and Doty to this point is athletic. I haven't seen anything from him to suggest that he's going to be the answer there. So until they find the answer at quarterback, I just, I don't see it. And like with Clemson in state, they're going, they're, they're second fiddle in their own state when it comes to recruiting. So are you ever going to consistently have the players to be able to compete against Georgia? I, I don't think so. I don't think on a consistent basis. Uh, Vanderbilt don't even deserve our breath. We're not talking about them. Kentucky, it's kind of what the, I mean. They had a little bit of a down year this year with some injuries in the COVID situation, but like, they're pretty much a 500 program, a seven to five program that can get to, to nine wins every now and then, like they had the past couple of years. I think Stoops is a good coach. He makes some changes on offense, but that program is not going to compete for SEC titles year in and year out. Like what we saw in 2018, that's an anomaly. That's not happening year in and year out. So by default, I think it's Florida because they're going to have better players. I mean, they're not going to have as good players as we do, but they're going to have better players 
than the other teams in the SEC East because they are in the state of Florida. Even Dan Mullen can't screw that up on the recruiting trail. So I think Florida by default is that program. And I just don't, I don't know, I guess Missouri, I guess you're right, Josh. Missouri might be the other program I look at right now and say they look like at this point in time, best position to maybe, maybe try to make a push here in a couple of years. But none of those teams really scare me, if I'm being honest. Our next question is from Jay-Z Daniels. He wants to know what you see for the dog's future on defense on all three levels. I think it's a pretty bright future on defense. I mean, as long as Kirby Smart and Dan Lanning are here, our future is going to be very bright on defense. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be the best defense in the country each and every year, but we're going to be a top defense year in, year out, somewhere there in the top 10 or so, somewhere around there. Really, in my opinion, for the foreseeable future. Now, next year, there, there are going to be some question marks. Sure, we're going to lose a lot of starters off this unit. And the Bears to be seen how many we're actually going to lose. Some guys like Aziz Ojolari could potentially come back. I've actually heard some smoke around his name for a couple of weeks now around town that he might actually be considering coming back, which I don't think a lot of Georgia fans would think. But there seems to be that possibility uh, that's still in play. But look, we're losing Richard LeCount. We're going to lose Monty Rice. Almost certainly going to lose Jordan Davis. Those are, those are some tough guys to replace. There's no doubt. Losing basically every cornerback, likely. I mean, Tyson Campbell, I guess, could come back, but I think that's highly unlikely. I think Stokes is gone. I think DJ Daniels is gone. So there are going to be a lot of spots up for grabs. But the great thing is, and this is why I say we're always going to be good. Number one, we have a great coach who puts an emphasis on defense. We have a great defensive coordinator. But we also have as much talent as any team in America. And I think we're getting to the point on defense. You, you saw this for years at Alabama where they would lose all these guys. LSU back when they were really rolling. They would lose all these guys on defense, but then they would be almost just as good the next year because they just have the next guy waiting line because they're just recruiting powerhouses. And we have become a recruiting powerhouse. We are one of the nuclear powers when it comes to recruiting. And that's why I don't think you're ever really going to see a significant drop-off on defense from one year to the next, even though you might have some new faces in there. Now, next year, you're going to have some young guys who haven't really done much. A guy like Keely Ringo is almost certainly going to factor in, although they didn't play at all this year. We're going to have some young guys on the defensive line that played some this year, but are going to have to take on new roles and really step up to the plate. Jalen Carter, who played a lot this year, but you're going to have to see guys like Zion Logue, Warren Brinson, those guys are going to have to really step up their game and take on a heavier load. And sure, there's, there's no guarantee that they can do it, but... I, I've seen enough for most of those guys to give me confidence that they're going to be just fine when they get their opportunity. So yeah, I, I think we're going to be fine next year on defense. I'm not going to say it's going to be smooth sailing right away, especially when you got Clemson out the gate. If we have a normal year next year, we're actually allowed to play non-conference games. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect right away, but we have some really talented players. In terms of like a little bit more specifics on who's going to be playing, I think Jalen Carter is going to be the dude up front on the interior of the defensive line. I think Nazir Stackhouse, Zion Logue, Warren Brinson are going to kind of round out that that group on the interior. At, at five tech, I think you're going to see a lot more if Malik Herring doesn't choose to come back, which I don't think that he will. I think you're going to see a lot more of Trevon Walker at the five tech, Tremel Walthour as well. You're going to see some guys like that. Outside linebacker, I mean, we'll see what happens with Aziz, but at the very least, you're going to have Nolan Smith. You're going to have Adam Anderson. You're going to have MJ Sherman. You're, we're still stacked at that position with highly, highly talented players cornerback again like we're losing a lot of guys but we have some talented players coming to John Warren if we can hold on to him I know the Penn State's making a push down the stretch and he's playing around with Georgia fans emotional stability with uh, some of those edits that he's posting but he's a guy that I think can come in right away and really contribute a la uh, uh, DJ Daniel from last year um, I, I think Jalen Kimber can be a guy that's really talented. I, I mean, he is really talented. I think he's a guy that can contribute. He hasn't done much this year, but he had to gain some weight. He's got elite speed. There's no doubt there. I'm really excited about Nyling Green, what he can do. Obviously, you got Lewis Cena, who's going to be a leader back there in the defense. So there's still, still a lot of really talented players 
that uh, are going to fill in nice uh, inside linebacker. I love what we have coming back at inside linebacker. I, I mean, I absolutely love Nicobe Dean. I love Quay Walker. Channing Tindall has really come on and impressed me late in the season. Um, if we can end up with a guy like Xavier Story, he might even factor in. We're not going to have to mention guys like Ryan Davis and Tresman Marshall, who are also really talented players in their own right. So it might not be the same Georgia defense that we saw this year, but and there actually are some spots where I think we might actually end up being better. I, maybe not right away, but I think by, by the time we get to the middle of the season and some of these young guys get some experience and get some playing time, I think you could see us be a more dynamic defense in some areas. I think on the defensive line, we don't have a guy like Jordan Davis. We don't have somebody to replace his his skill set, but I think we have some guys that bring something a little bit different to the table. We might actually see Kirby Smart and Dan Lang allow some of those guys like Jalen Carter to to be a little bit more aggressive in using their quickness to penetrate and create disruption in the backfield, which hasn't really been our MO. We like to two-gap a lot. But that we don't, I don't know if we really have a guy that's built to do that like Jordan Davis is. So I think there's a chance we could see an adjustment there, which could make us maybe a little bit more dynamic defensively up front, especially in the past game. So that bears watching. But look, again, the, the, I think the future is very bright defensively, even though we might be losing uh, some key contributors off this year's defense. Nathan asks, which players do you think will go pro and who else will transfer from the program this offseason? Yeah, that's always a big question this time of year. So thanks to Nathan. We can definitely dig into that. It's always a big question this time of year, and um, we always talk about it. I, I, but I always kind of cringe when I talk about it because I hate just kind of like throwing names out there uh, because we don't know what's going on with these guys. I hate putting their name out there. Not that anyone listens to this show like we're gonna like st- we're gonna start a national conversation about these guys and start some rumors. No, so just I want to make sure everyone understands this is just speculation. I don't really know. I, I might have heard a few things here and there. Some guys might be thinking about it, but I I, I don't really know. Just kind of looking at the situation that some of these guys face this year and. And what they've got coming next year. In terms of guys that are going pro, I mean, I think Tyson Campbell's probably going to go. He's going to blow up the combine. He'll probably go. I, I don't think he should, but it's not for me to say. Jordan Davis, I think he'll probably go. Although I have heard more people say around town than I imagine would be the case that he might actually be considering coming back. I just don't know. I've heard actually heard quite a bit about quite a bit about Aziz coming back, and there's a lot of smoke there. I just I don't know uh, with Aziz. I think. He could he could make the jump. He's not gonna be a first round pick. Probably not a second round pick. And maybe if he comes back next year. I just I, I for Aziz I just don't know how much his draft stock's gonna raise in a, in, a, in another year on campus because we the, we we require certain things from our outside linebackers. They have to be complete players, and we don't really like set them free to rush the passer as much as maybe like a, an old school like four three defensive end. Plus, we play a lot of guys. He gets more opportunities than anyone else on the team outside linebacker, but. He's not on the field every single play. He's not on the field on every single third down. So I don't know, like, if, are his numbers going to improve all that much? I know, yeah, maybe in a 12-game season, sure. But, again, you don't know what's important to the guy. Is how, how important is, is the degree for a guy like Aziz Ojolari? How important is winning a national championship, potentially? All those things, you, those are tough to measure. You don't really know. So, like, we, we look at this objectively and say, oh, yeah, this guy should go or this guy should stay. But they all have different priorities. They all have different situations in life. And it's just tough to know what their individual situations or individual, individual principles and priorities are and what their goals are. But I've actually, I thought he would probably be gone, but I've heard some... I've heard some pretty strong rumors that he might actually be considering coming back. We'll see what happens there. Um, Stokes is gone. I think I think Mark Webb and DJ Daniel are both going to be gone. They both accepted invites to the Senior Bowl, and if you accept an invite to the Senior Bowl, then and you and you actually play in it, then you lose your eligibility. Now, accepting the invite and playing are two different things. Curtis and I talked about both those guys potentially coming back next uh, on the show last week, but 
the senior bowl thing is a little bit concerning. So they got invites. You usually don't turn those down. So they're probably both gone. Um, let's see who else we're thinking. Uh, Salyer and Trey Hill are other popular names you hear with, within Dog Nation. A lot of um, speculation they might go pro. I just, I think both those guys should come back. I don't think either one has been consistent enough this year to put themselves in a, in a situation where they're going to be drafted high in the NFL draft. Again, you don't know what the, what the priorities are. You don't know what it would take for them. Some of the, some guys are happy just getting drafted. Some guys say, hey, if you give me a fourth or fifth round grade, I'm happy. I don't know. Um, but I, I think both those guys should come back. And I guess I would lean more towards both of them coming back right now. Remains to be seen. I don't know. Um, in terms of transfers, Trey Blunt was a guy that I was certainly thinking of. He's already put his name in there. Adam Anderson's a guy that I've been worried about all year because he's not playing as much. But I think what I'm hearing about him is that there's more of a chance they'll come back than maybe I thought early in the year. I thought he might be gone, but I'm starting to hear more that he might actually be trending to, to coming back next year, which would be huge for this program, especially if you can add some weight. I mean, that guy is still clearly the best pass rusher on the team. I think he's an awesome straight-up pass rusher. We all know that. He's just got to become more of a complete player. Maybe he never will be, and he's just that third-down specialist. As long as, he's, as long as he's okay with that role, then he can he can play, and we can use him in a big way. So, But I think he'll probably come back – some of those inside linebackers I mentioned earlier that maybe haven't seen the field much, guys like Ryan Davis and Tresman Marshall, certainly possible those guys could look elsewhere. Matt Landers, Tommy Bush at wide receiver, some guys that just through injuries or whatever it might be, just poor play, have kind of fallen out of the rotation, aren't really a factor. Those guys could be transfer options. There's no doubt there. On the offensive line, there could be some guys whether it's, I mean, I think Clay Webb will certainly come back and compete next year. I think, I think, I think most of those guys will compete because they're going. There's going to be at least two spots open uh, at the guard spots, or maybe the center spot if we move Trey Hill over to to a guard. And I still think that right tackle is going to be open next year. I don't. I'm not saying McClendon can't win it, can't hold everybody off, but I don't think he's solidified that job. Like it's just his job, and no one, like not like an Andrew Thomas did. I don't think he's there yet. So there are going to be some possibilities. And I, so I think all those guys are at least going to, if we have a spring practice, stay through the spring and see if they can make a move. But after spring, you might see some movement on the offensive line. Some of those guys are kind of stuck in the depth, down on the depth chart. And then, of course, there's always a surprise or two. You never can predict all of them. But those are some of the guys that come to the top of my mind when thinking about potential transfers. We know this is a Georgia podcast, not a Florida podcast. But as a Georgia podcast, we have a responsibility to point and laugh at Florida whenever possible, and that might have never been more possible than this weekend after the loss to LSU. So our next couple of questions are about having fun at Florida's expense. First, G asks, if we were to play Florida again, do you think we win? He might think he sounds crazy, but he thinks we'll win by 20 or more points. It is always fun to laugh at Florida. I know we've already done our fair share of that in the open, but, hey, what the heck, let's do a little bit more of it. And, gee, yeah, I, I agree with you that if we played Florida this weekend that we would beat them. The reason, Not the only reason, but the primary reason we lost to Florida, just like the primary reason we lost to Alabama, is we did not have an answer at quarterback. Now, we had some injuries in Florida that we did not have in Alabama, which certainly factored into that game as well. But we just didn't have the quarterback situation solved. Stetson started out pretty well in that game, actually. Remember, we were up 14-0, and he gets rocked and he gets hurt then Dwan Mathis comes in we got guys running wide open down the field with both Stetson and Dwan and we just couldn't hit them what's been different these last three games well we've still been dialing up plays with guys running wide open down the field we just have a quarterback that's number one finding them and number two hitting them that's the big difference so yeah I I, I think our personnel is better than Florida we just didn't have the quarterback we had the injuries we're getting healthier we got the quarterback now we would beat them now I don't know if I'm ready to say that we would beat them by 20 plus points it's certainly possible 
the floor defense is not good. I've been telling you guys that all year. Their defense is not good. Now, has it gotten a little bit better as the season has progressed? Sure, most teams do, but they're still not good. They're very vulnerable against the run. And if we played them again, now with a threat of a quarterback actually punishing you by loading the box to try to take away our run game, I think that we would be able to run all over them. They would have to respect the pass, and I think that we would run all over them, especially with Kenny McIntosh back healthy. Zeus continues to improve. We're finding ways to utilize James Cook in a way that we never had before. Yeah, I think we're better than Florida. We have better personnel. And now with JT Daniels being unleashed and us getting healthy, I absolutely think we're the better team, and I think that we would beat them if we played them this week. Unfortunately, that's not how it works, but then the breaks when it comes to college football, I guess. Next up, Eric asks, why did Florida think they were going to win the SEC? Because they're college football fans, and that's what college football fans do. We all delude ourselves. Every program does this. Some do it more consistently and more outrageously than others. But Florida fans had deluded themselves into thinking that this was their year. They've been, guys, remember, they've been so starved. They were so starved for just decent quarterback play. They finally got that this year. We had our quarterback issues. We had our injuries. They were able to beat us. So, if, And I think deep down they realize that their program is not in the same place as ours, that they don't recruit the same level as us, and they want to think that their coach is better than our coach. But I think deep down they realize that he's not, and there's just something not right in his head. And they're thinking, oh, God, this is our year. This is our year. Yes, we're going to do this. We have, the, we have the quarterback that we've been waiting for. It's been a decade since we had a quarterback like this, a decade plus. Georgia's not what Georgia normally is. So this is the year. So they kind of had talked themselves into thinking that, yes, this is the year that we're going we're gonna to take the next step. We're going to get over the hump and we're going to win a national title or at least win in the SEC and get in the college football playoff. And they just it glossed over all the issues on this team, namely the defense. The offensive line is not good. They do not have a run game. Yes, you have a really good a quarterback that does a really good job within that system, getting the ball to his playmakers. You have Kyle Pitts, you have Kadarius Tony that really make that offense tough to handle. Uh, Dan Bone does a good job scheming it up. I'll give him credit. But the fact is there were holes in this team that I'd been pointing out all year long even in the, in the preview show when we were getting ready to, to play them, there were there were, were holes in this team. Even with all the injuries, we had a chance to beat them. There was a reason we were up 14-0 in that game, guys. We had no business even really being in that game with the situation at quarterback, with all the injuries that we had the week before that game. They had a, a, a basically a three-week layoff to, to get healthy and not to worry about that. I mean, we had no business really even being in that game, to be honest with you. But yet we still jumped out to a 14-0 lead. And again, they just, they deluded themselves. They deluded themselves into thinking that this was the year because they realized deep down that there are not going to be many years when you got Georgia rolling like we're rolling under Kirby Smart and out recruiting them each and every year. It's just not going to be something that they're consistently in. They're not going to consistently be in that position. So they went all in on it this year. And um, yeah, how'd that work out for you? All right. Trey wants to know, why do you think the media makes excuses for Florida and Mullen after a loss, yet discounted our scheduling and injury issues and our loss to Florida? They do that because they've invested so much in the idea that Dan Mullen is a superior coach to Kirby Smart. Not just even a superior coach to Kirby Smart, but the national cultural media has invested so much in this idea that Dan Mullen is a coaching genius, the quarterback whisperer, an offensive mastermind. He's an elite coach. The only reason he ever won bigger at Mississippi State is because he was at Mississippi State, couldn't recruit players. As soon as he got a big-time job, he was going to take the college football world by storm. They've invested so much in that narrative and that idea that they cannot back off of it for, at this point. They just simply cannot. So when Florida has a season like they started off with this year, when they beat Georgia and they are set up to, to play in the SEC Championship game, which we all know is going to happen. Happen, good for them. Yay, awesome. 
Well, the media is going to play that up because, hey, that's evidence that we were right. We were right. Look at us. We know what we're talking about. Yet every time they fall flat on their face and Dan Mullen looks like an idiot, they make excuses for him, right? They cover for him because they were the ones who invented this narrative, this idea that he is this genius, that he is this coaching superstar. And, and so, of course, they're not going to bring up any mitigating factors. The fact that we had a former walk-on start at quarterback because there were, our starting quarterback was, that was supposed to be our guy, that was supposed to be our starting quarterback at the beginning of the year, opts out a couple weeks before the season starts. The guy that we recruited to be our backup plan is not completely healthy, and we, and, and we didn't know that. And then that quarterback actually starts off pretty well in that game, 14-0 lead, and then he gets knocked out. And oh man, by the way, we are we were the walking wounded. We were decimated on the defense side of the ball going against a really good offense. They're not going to mention those mitigating factors because that doesn't support their narrative. It goes against their narrative. And the national media members, like no one wants to be wrong. Like, not just that nobody likes to be wrong. So they're not going to willfully point out things that make it look like they are wrong. They're going to point out what makes it look like they know what they're talking about and that they're geniuses. And this is why you should listen to me. This is why you should click on, on my link. That's why they do it. They're just not intellectually honest. I mean, that's why I don't even pay attention to the mainstream cultural media. I just don't even bother paying attention to it anymore because number one, the vast majority of them have no clue what they're talking about. They are absolutely clueless when it comes to actual football. They create these absurd narratives just to kind of create controversy and have people pay attention to them. And it just, none of it matters. None of it matters, but that's why they do those things, at least as far as I'm concerned. Cliff has the next question. He wants to know, which is more embarrassing? The 2019 loss to South Carolina for UGA or the 2020 LSU loss for Florida? That's a good question, Cliff. They're both embarrassing losses. Absolutely losing to South Carolina, a terrible South Carolina team last year at home was embarrassing. But losing to LSU at home this late in the season is also embarrassing for Florida. And they both had really high stakes. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. Losing to South Carolina at home cost us a spot in the cultural playoff. We were not going to be LSU, but that would have been our only loss all season last year. So we probably would have been the four seed. We probably wouldn't have done much as we were we were just decimated from an injury standpoint there at the end of the year. And we weren't playing well at all offensively. We all know that. We don't need to rehash that. But we at least would have gotten in. So that the stakes were high there. And the stakes were also high with Florida because, I mean, even if they went beat Alabama now, I'm, I just don't think they're going to get in the college playoff. I just, that's a bad, bad loss. That was their second loss. So unless they just like blow the doors off Alabama and like maybe Ohio State loses to Northwestern or something crazy like that, I don't, I don't think they're getting in. I don't. So the stakes are high in both games. I think both losses cost those teams a potential spot in a college football playoff. But I would say the, the Florida loss to LSU is more embarrassing because of the way it happened. Okay, like the this the comical nature of a shoe being chucked twenty yards down the field and that play. I mean, look, I know there were other plays involved in the game, but that really strongly contributed to that loss. They were they going to get a stop there, get the ball back to Kyle Trask, probably going down the field, probably score, probably going to win that game. But then you take the shoe and you throw the shoe and then the whole referee with the whole call, like personal foul, throwing the shoe 20 yards down the field, like, oh my God. It's just the, the comical nature of that. Just I think that makes it more embarrassing because people eventually forget about the South Carolina loss, like in the national like consciousness like that's not going to linger this game will linger because of the way it went down the shoe game will be known forever and i don't think that's going away anytime soon so i think because of that that's the more embarrassing loss all right that's enough florida bashing for the day so let's get back on track we have two questions left 
Cliff wants to know, what impact will Malzahn's firing have on UGA with recruiting and other aspects of the program? Thanks for the question, Cliff. I think that's a good question. That's just a tough question to answer at the same time because we don't know who's going to replace him. There's so many rumors out there, whether it's Hugh Freeze, Mario Cristobal, now Kevin Steele apparently is in the running to get promoted from defensive coordinator to head coach. I don't know. I, that, that makes no sense to me. If Auburn does that, that's that's a Shane Beamer-esque move. Actually, that's, I guess it's better than Shane Beamer because at least he'll have coordinator experience, but just promoting the guy that's already in the program, I, I don't know about that. But there's just so many names that are out there right now um, you even got to throw in the Louisiana coach. You got to throw in Billy Napier, who's got a, a background as a good recruiter. He's worked in the Southeast for a lot of guys like Nick Saban's worked with Kirby Smart. So there's so many names out there, and it's just hard to know, hard to answer that question without knowing who gets that job. But if it's an elite recruiter, it might make recruiting a little bit tougher. And there's another guy in there because Gus was never an elite recruiter, fine, decent, but never elite. If you get a high power recruiter in there, maybe that changes things a little bit. But until I see who the actual coach is going to be, I'm going to hold off on answering that question definitively. We'll come back to that once they make a hire. How about that? Our last question for today comes from Chris. He wants to know if you think opt-outs will happen beyond this season. The college football fan of me wants to say no because I think it's very, very bad for the sport. But the cynic in me wants to say, yeah, once the cat's out of the bag, it's going to be hard to put that back in. And we started to see that trend, obviously, with bowl games over the past five or six years. Maybe Was it Leonard Fournette who was the first big name to do that? Maybe? I don't know. He's just the first one I can think of the top of my head who really kind of brought that into popularity. And now it's just kind of taken off. And now, like, with this whole COVID opt-out thing, like, Charlie and I talked about this last week. They're not opting out now. They are quitting, Okay opting out was before the season when you were saying I have legitimate health concerns like Jamie Newman if, if that was indeed the situation I think even Jamie Newman I don't know if it was really health concerns I think it was more of like let's protect my value which uh, that's a whole other conversation let's not go there I can go down the rabbit hole in that one but I, they're just quitting now they're just saying oh yeah we're out of contention and I don't really want to practice right now I want to stay healthy I don't want to mess around I just want to like chill out and live my life and I don't want to do all the things you have to do to play right now because guys this has been tough on the players I will I will absolutely be the first to commend them for all their sacrifices. I mean, they can't go out and do all the things that college students do. They just they can't do that. Like, well, some teams aren't doing that because um, they're trying to actually play a season like Georgia. But then you have teams all over the country where they're out of out of the the, the race and they're just kind of going to whatever. And clearly, they're just getting COVID left and right. But our guys have sacrificed a lot, so I understand that you don't want to get tested like you know a couple of times a week and you're tired of all the restrictions on your life. I get that. Um, so like. I understand there's mitigating factors there, but you're still quitting. Like whatever your reasoning is, at this point, you're not saying I have a health concern. You're just saying, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I'm done with the sacrifices. And that's that's quitting on your teammates who are continuing to, to to play and practice and the coaches who invest the time in you. So I just personally have a problem with that. Other people have different principles. They see it differently. That's fine. I just, I, in, I, know, I don't know. It's just not something that I would choose to do in that situation, but I don't get to dictate how others behave. They're autonomous individuals and they get to behave how they want to behave. But I I don't know, man. This is a tough one to say. But I, I do think when teams fall out of contention late in the season and if you have a highly rated player who's high on NFL draft boards and his team is, let's say, three and seven with a couple weeks left in the year and they have no chance to do anything, they're not going to go to a bowl game, they're not going to compete for obviously any sort, any sort of championship – I don't know if love of the program and loyalty to your program and your teammates is going to be enough to keep those kind of guys playing because it hasn't been enough to keep those guys playing in bowl games. So why the logical extension is, well, just late in the season when you're out of it, you're not really technically playing for anything other than pride in your program and your fan base and your teammates. 
those things don't seem to matter for bowl games. So why are they matter the last couple of games of the year when you're out of contention, not really technically, quote unquote, playing for anything? So I hope that I'm wrong there, but I do think you're going to see some draft eligible players continue to opt out if they're on bad teams that are not really contending for anything late in the season. That sucks, but I th- I'm fearful that that is going to continue to happen. I really, really hope I'm wrong, though. I really do hope I'm wrong. I hope that's one that I am way off base on. But all right, guys. This is a long one, man. We want to make sure we got through all the questions. We had a little bit extra time today, so we stuck it out and want to get to each and every question that was sent in, at least before we start recording this on uh, early Monday afternoon. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. We enjoyed answering all the questions. Love talking football. We will be back later on this week, of course. We will be recapping the early signing period. Then Charlie and I will be back to wrap up the week with our picks of the week. Yes, we still are doing picks of the week. There are still games being played. I got to catch up, so we're doing that. So we'll have some fun with that later on the week, guys. But thanks for listening. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>